Let's go ahead and take our Bibles and locate the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We'll get right into God's Word. As we do this morning, I need you to imagine with me that you are at your favorite buffet. Even if you don't like buffets, my wife doesn't like buffets at all. She goes just because I like them sometimes. But uh, imagine your favorite buffet and you're there. It may be uh, Hoo Hot, it may be Pizza Ranch, uh, China something down here on Delaware, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, so you've been there, I can tell. Okay, great, no problem. <laughs> right. um, when you go in there, here's one thing that happens when you go to a buffet. It happens every time you realize there's more here than I can eat. Even if you make a return trip, you know, in your only visit, you're not going to be able to get everything. You might get a sample, but your eyes see so much stuff, and you're like, eh, I'm not going to be able to get all this. And so you, you go back maybe next week. You go back the next month. Well, well, that situation physically is where you are and where I am spiritually today. We're going to be looking at nine verses that are a buffet, and you're going to see off the bat there's more here than we can eat in this time. But I don't want you to be worried. We're going to be satisfied. We'll be filled richly with God's Word. It's, just, it's going to be uh, delightfully delicious. But you will have moments you're like, I wonder what that means, and what about this phrase, and what about this concept? And we'll have to make a return trip, okay? Uh, I want us to kind of see this set of verses through the lens of our overall series aim, which is to analyze the in Christ phrases, especially Ephesians 1 through 3, 1 through 3. So that's our aim today. I want to invite you to join me as we do that in these nine verses, knowing full well that though you'll leave satisfied and, and full, there'll be things you'll still leave on the buffet, all right? So your Bibles are open now to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read for you the first nine verses, then we'll take some time to analyze them through the framework of uh, its timelines. Here's the text for us. God's Word says in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Say the next two words with me, church. But God. Amen. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now that's a meaty 
buffet, isn't it? There's so much there that we can savor, so many morsels we can meditate on. I want to analyze these nine verses, however, through the framework, the lens of the timeline represented. First, notice the past. He talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so, in no uncertain terms, Paul establishes this fact that before Christ, we are spiritually dead. There's no life within us. There's no thirst for God. There's no interest in God. Uh, he would say in other places like Romans that we've all turned away. We've all sinned. No one seeks after God. Here he uses one word to describe this. It's the word dead. And he's speaking of our spiritual status. In fact, I, I can prove that to you because accompanying the word dead are actually some action verbs. Do you notice that in this? I think it's kind of ironic, don't you? He says you're dead, but then he mentions four action verbs. Look with me at the, these verses. He says, as you walked, you followed, you lived, and you carried out. So here it is. It's, it's this spiritual death status that's actually made visible by our rebellion against God. And, and make no mistake, that is what's going on here. The, the, the phraseology, the, the verbiage, the terms here, they indicate someone who's, and a people, all people, who are just against God. Notice what he says here. They're not in Christ. Instead, they're in their sin. They're, uh, they're working because of the power of the, the Spirit, which is the prince of the power of the earth. That's that power, that Spirit's in them. They're, they're living in the passion and lust of their flesh, mind, and body, he calls them children of wrath. And so we have here a very poignant, powerful, and quite frankly, provocative picture of anyone before Christ. It's someone who's spiritually dead, but physically active in rebellion against God. That's why I think one of the best words to describe this past tense part of our life is the word rebel. We're just anti God. We're disobedient. We're sinful. We're under his wrath. And by the way, it's not just a certain part of us or a certain segment of the population. I love what he does here in the use of pronouns. He starts with the word you, by the way. See that in verse one? You were dead. I think there he's speaking most textually to the Gentiles in that church. I can take this back to chapter one. And we reviewed the Jew-Gentile division. I think he's still referencing here the Gentiles in this church and saying, you were dead in your sins but notice by verse 3, he's now saying we. Do you see that? We all once lived. So he's now bringing in the Jews saying, by the way, it's not just the Gentiles in the church. It's the Jews in that church. We're, we're all like that. But by the end of verse 3, look what he does. He says, so is the rest of mankind. And you got to love the way Paul just puts the umbrella of sin over everyone, doesn't he? Like there is no one exempt from being dead in sin. And notice, by the way, how many times the word in is mentioned? Four times. Verse 1, verse 2, the end of verse 2, and in verse 3. So we can draw something from this. That in our spiritual status as dead before Christ, and yet physically rebelling against God, that's because we're in someone other than Christ. The text would say we're dead in sin, he attributes, of course, that sin to this prince of the power of the earth that's working in those who don't believe. That would be Satan, the father of lies. And so you're either in Christ or you're in sin. 
owned by Satan. No one is in some middle ground. There's no neutral territory. There's not like some, you know, uh, no man's land. There's not like some vacuum place. Jesus would say later in the New Testament, you are either for me or you are against me. In these three verses, Paul is describing those who are against God. That's the past of every single person before Christ. Your BC life, this is it. Now that's uh, heavy, wouldn't you agree? Like, man, it's a heavy first 10 minutes, Todd. But can I show you the next two words? Verse four, in fact, would you say them out loud with me? But God, isn't that beautiful? And notice what he doesn't say next. He, he's not through describing our past. And then he says, but you. He doesn't say, but Julie or but Travis. He goes right to God as the only one who can intervene on behalf of spiritually dead rebels. He says that God, because of his rich mercy and his great love, here's the, the foundation of his action. He's done three things for us. Look with me. Circle these in your Bibles. Verse 5, it says, he made us alive together. Verse 6 says, he raised us up. And verse 6 says, he seated us. And notice that all these are done with Christ. Again, I will repeat this for you. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him, the pronoun him that refers to Christ back in verse 5. And then he seated us with him, speaking of Christ. So God has done three things. These are, by the way, three indicative active sentences. They're statements of fact. What God has done for rebels, he has brought them new life. He's raised them up and he's seated them with Christ and in Christ. So, so here's what's amazing. God has done all the action. Remember, our spiritual status is that of, of, of we're dead and we're actively physically rebelling against God. But in the middle of that, God chases and pursues and goes after sinners, rebels with mercy and love. And then those who trust and believe on the good news of Christ, you know what he does? He makes them alive, he raises them, and he seats them in the heavenly places. Isn't that beautiful? Now, what God does for rebels is he makes them righteous. Now, listen very carefully to the next few sentences because God does not make sinful rebels into living righteous saints by anything they have done. Because what follows verse 3 are really all about, their, it's all about God's actions. Do you see that? And it's about God's actions in Christ. So understand something, church. The indispensable players in the work of salvation are God, His Son, and His Spirit. And they have moved on your behalf. And then God convicts sinners of their sin. He draws them to the cross. They hear the news and they do respond. They believe, yes, but they've done nothing to earn God's favor. We, rebels have done nothing to bring themselves to life. It is all a work of God. This is a beautiful section of scripture. In fact, let me just accent the three indicative active statements here. I mentioned those to you. Made alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, seated us with him. Those are kind of bookended, or at least maybe I could say accented, 
by two passive voice phrases. And guess what those are? Look in verse 5. By grace, you have been saved. That's a passive voice. So God has done the action. You are the recipient. He does that again in verse 8. We'll get there in a moment. By grace, you have been saved. And in verse 5, I love the way that the first time he mentions by grace, you have been saved. You see it there in your Bible? Most of you will have it kind of set off by dashes. Do you notice that? It may be in parentheses or brackets, but here's what I think is happening in Paul's mind, if I can just kind of be real human with you. It's almost as if Paul is now explaining what God has done for rebels. These three things that God takes action to do on, on behalf of sinful rebels, and he's so excited about it that he interrupts the first one and says, by grace you've been saved. Oh, let me go back to my thought now. And he kind of goes back to his thought because he repeats himself in verse 8. I mean, Paul is overwhelmed. He's just blown away with this truth that God would take action on behalf of rebels to make them righteous. And he would take folks who were outside of Christ and through Christ place them in Christ. And if you here this morning are a believer, your heart right now is probably pumping and beating and rejoicing that this is what God has done for you in Christ by his spirit. But why did God do that? Why has God, we'll use the phrase, intersected with rebels in his great love and mercy to save them and bring them to life and make them righteous saints? Why did God do that? Verse 7 tells us. Here's the future aspect of the timeline in these verses. Begins in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So notice something here. What God does in the present is in Christ. And what God is going to do in the future is in Christ. So God's work is through and in and by means of his son, Christ Jesus. In fact, just looking back at verse 6 just for a moment again before I move on to the, to the reason that he does all this. He does for you spiritually. He does for his children spiritually what he did for his own son physically. You notice that? Christ was dead. He died for our sin. God raised him to life and then seated him by his throne in the ascension. And Paul here says God is doing that spiritually in the lives of all those who believe what he did for his own son physically. Now that's what I call being in Christ, don't you? In other words, the, the, the very same thing that God did for his own son, he will do for you as children. He'll raise you up spiritually and he'll seat you with him in the heavenly spiritually. Wow, this is what God does. And here's why he does it. So that in the coming ages, verse 7 says, he can demonstrate this grace. He can show, authenticate, prove all that he's done in the lives of his, of his, of his children. The key word here in this last phrase, this future aspect, is the word show. And it means to demonstrate. It means that your life is a showcase. Your life is a display of all that God has done by his grace. Now, a lot of you know me, and you know, a lot of you know me really well, and you know I love words. And I love playing with words. And so I was really tempted at this point to try to find one more R. Because, you know, here's rebels who've been made righteous so that God, and I was like, man, I'm struggling. Because 
I didn't think represent really felt, it really packed the punch of the original word show. I don't think it does. I didn't think reflect or resound kind of hit it hard enough, and I don't think they do. And so I just want you to know, your pastor who loves words and loves playing with them, I'm going to stick with demonstrate, all right? So God takes these rebels, and by his own initiative, he turns them into righteous saints for the purpose of demonstrating, proving, verifying, authenticating, showcasing, displaying, what? Not anything about them, but everything about him. Now, can I just be very frank with you as your pastor? I hope you see something happening in the progression of these nine verses. You're a very minimal part. <laughs> I'm in that you. We are a minimal part in one sense. God is the one taking the action on behalf of us as rebels. And he's doing this action so that he can maximize his name, his grace. It really is all about God. Now, notice some things about this showcasing, this demonstration. Quickly, two things. One is we are to be a demonstration of God's grace. The word grace is the word gift. So we're not demonstrating that we had a part in it. We're not demonstrating that we purchased it or that we leveraged God, or that we met God at the bargaining table, or that we negotiated a good spiritual deal. None of that's in play here. What are we showcasing and demonstrating? That we were dead in rebellion against God, and by His own grace, His mercy, His love, He saved us. That's grace, by the way. Grace is a gift. And I, I want to challenge you here. Travis was exactly right earlier. It's hard to think this way in the Western world. It's hard with our human pride at stake to think that, that we are going to receive a gift for which we had nothing to do. Like, surely we want to bring something to the table. We want to kind of have our hand in it. But that's never the case with God's gift of salvation. It is a, and the words used in the text, it is a gift. And watch this, church. Hear this very clearly and precisely. To corrupt it, with your own hands is to actually reject it. You can't be biblically born again by saying, well, I'll take what God has to offer and I'll add some stuff to it. I'll bring my stuff to the table as well. That's not genuine salvation according to the Bible. So you may think you're saved. You may feel better about yourself, but if you've corrupted grace in any way, it's not grace and you are not saved. It must be a moment when your hands are off and you've simply heard the good news that God in Christ is reconciling sinners who simply trust him and believe him. At that moment, you open your hand and say, God, I don't have anything to offer. I'm poor, I'm spiritually broke. I'm spiritually depraved and naked before you. I have nothing. And God, to poor, naked, broken sinners, he clothes them with his righteous garments. To sinners with no name, God gives them his name. To sinners who are chained and slaved, he gives them freedom. It's all God. We can't bring anything to that equation except a response of faith to what he's done. This is what God is showcasing. Grace. But I must show you one more thing about this. It's not just grace as a concept. 
It's actually who gives the grace. Notice the pronoun in verse 7, would you? He says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And so everything about this is not just the fact that, it's, that we're a demonstration of grace, a free gift from God. We're a demonstration of, of God's grace. Not of your grace, not of your family's grace, not of your job's grace. There's none of that's in play here. We have been saved to be a, a living demonstration that God makes dead rebels righteous saints. And only God can do that. My heart right now is so stirred and broken. And, and, and grateful. Isn't yours? I mean, consider this, church. If this text means what it does, and it does, here's the best compliment you could ever receive. Rennie, I can't believe God saved you. <laughs> like, we hear that often, and we think it's like a negative. Like, hey. And we kind of have the human pride creep in. Like, well, I wasn't that bad. We kind of want to buck up a little bit, you know, and we bring our own good works to the table. But do you realize that actually, when someone says, Dustin, I can't believe you're a Christian. That's a great compliment. It's a demonstration that in the, in the life of a sinner, a dead rebel, God did a miracle and he brought new life. Amen. Paul alluded to this very same concept in 1 Timothy 1.16. Look at this verse. And Paul is taking here much more of a current present tense perspective, Okay. I think in Ephesians, he takes more of a future coming ages perspective. But let me just show you what he does here in this verse, because I think he's still kind of chopping at the same concept. He said that he received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, and there he means by the foremost of sinners, he called himself other places, the chief of sinners. He says that in me, Jesus Christ might say the word church, display the word there is demonstrate. It's show might show his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, notice what's true in this verse as also in Ephesians. Nothing about God's work through Christ in Paul's life is pointing to Paul. He's not saying, man, God saved me to show all those who would be saved that it really pays off to pursue God. He didn't say that. He says the exact opposite. He says, God saved me. To give you an example, the word there is pattern or template of how God is so patient with people. Man, everything about our salvation is designed to point vertically. It's designed to showcase, to demonstrate, to shout all that God does. And in no uncertain terms, church, you are the trophy case of heaven. And you're to point to the one who did all of the work. Now, I've been saying to you both uh, explicitly and implicitly, this is a hard thing to get your hands around because we're, we're so ingrained from, you know, one and two years old forward to kind of earn everything. I don't think that's so bad, by the way. A good work ethic, uh, the system of rewards, is not inherently evil. It just can really make it difficult to hear the gospel and accept it. Because you're so sure you've got to have a hand in it. When it comes to God, and again, Travis pointed this, in God's economy, there's no earning of any grace. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called grace. Amen? 
It is a gift. And so we have to begin to think, okay, a gift is something I simply receive because it's already been paid for. Now, I believe our culture generally pushes against this. Even though I think they know that it's a, it sounds good, I don't think they really like it or want it, so they push against it. Case in point, in the third season of NBC's show, The Good Place, there's an episode where the main character, his name's Michael, he's played by Ted Danson. Everybody knows your name, right? Uh, Ted Danson is this guy named Michael, and, and so his job throughout the show is to kind of track or help people tally or kind of be the the uh, overseer of all those who are trying to earn their way to the good place. In this show, the good place is a synonym for heaven, and the show has no context for any kind of gift. Everything's about earning. But in this episode in season three, we find that Michael is, is uh, in a dilemma because he can't figure out why no one's ever made it to the good place. And so he's kind of probing this, uh, and he realizes that no matter what you do, you seem to get negative points. In fact, he says in one episode, he says, man, even buying a tomato is negative points. And so he's kind of solving his own problem. Wow, no one's ever made it to the good place. No one's ever earned enough points. But here's why. No matter what you do, it ends up negative. And here's how, what he said about why that is. I quote from that episode. He says, it's impossible for anyone to be good enough for the good place. These days, just buying a tomato at a grocery store means that you are unwittingly supporting toxic pesticides, exploiting labor, or contributing to global warming. <laughs> now, when you hear that, you have to admit, NBC was right on one thing. They nailed relativism and moralism. So Doug over here thinks he's doing a good thing. Halfway around the world, someone's like, Doug, that's a terrible thing. He's trying to get points. They're taking them away. You see, this is why the whole theory of, you know, who can be good enough, it fails everyone in the end because it's a, it's a system of moving goalposts. It's a foundation of shifting sand. It, it's a shell game. You never know where you stand because you never know who's drawing the line. So moralism, relativism, good workism, Catholicism, these things where you have to kind of do your best and chip in Mormonism. You have to kind of do your part. Man, it, it will crush you in the end. It will never save you. And this is why the only one who can save is the God of biblical Christianity. Here's why. Because in biblical Christianity, there's one standard set by one person. Here's what it is. The standard is perfection. If you don't meet it, you're not in. Well, guess what? No one's met it. We are all under sin. Jew, Gentile, what does verse 3 say? The rest of mankind were children of wrath. So what are we to do? Well, God sent himself in the person of Jesus Christ to meet that standard. And Jesus Christ, as God, lived the perfect life, died in our place, the perfect sacrifice, and was raised again by the Father, both in time and space, historically and supernaturally, to prove he was the Son of God. And now all who simply trust Jesus to stand in for them, to be their atoning sacrifice, God considers them righteous because of Christ. And that's true universally, globally. Name your geography, that is true. There's one standard and there's one sacrifice. And all who believe in Jesus will receive the gift of eternal life. 
See, I'll take my stand with biblical Christianity every single time, both historically, supernaturally, and even logically. I've got no time for moralism, relativism, humanism, good workism. Man, it's a crushing, moving goalpost shell game. Give me Jesus, the one person who's met God's standards and who simply calls all men and women to repent and believe. I'll take Jesus and I'll hide in him. God will place me there. And every time God looks at me, he doesn't see sinful, wretched Todd. He sees righteous, living Todd because of Jesus. That's what God is demonstrating by saving people. Can we sweeten the buffet a little bit here? The section that we're going to camping on? This is what he's demonstrating, in fact, in the coming ages. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Because it's plural. So you get the sense that, okay, God's going to be doing something that's just going to continue to happen over and over, age after age. It's different than the phrase in chapter 1, verse 19. Excuse me, verse 21. If you'll just go back there and circle it on your own later. There Paul says that in the coming age, Christ will be seen and known as the name above every name. So there is a coming time, a singular event or a moment or an age in which Christ will be visibly, personally reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. Here, though, he uses the plural. He says that in the coming ages... God's going to display his grace and his gift through all those he has saved. So, so what's going on with that? Here's what I think is being kind of communicated. It may just be a, a play on words, so to speak, because in the Bible, the word eternity is a com combination of Greek words. The, the best way we can translate this phrase, into the ages of the ages, is by the word eternity. It's hard to find a, a singular word for eternity in the Greek New Testament. It's usually a, a multiple collection of words, in the ages of the ages. So he may be saying here just eternity. But I think what he's getting at is this, that when God saves people, his goal is to demonstrate his graciousness, his goodness, his work, watch this, in a repeating, succeeding fashion for all eternity. Now think about it like this. Think about when God first made the world and he made the first ocean and that first ocean had its first wave hit the shore. After that first wave, what happened next? There was a second wave. And then there was a what? Third wave. And so for thousands of years, what has been happening on the shore of that ocean? Wave after wave after wave. You want to join me? After wave. I could just go on, right? It's endless. It's ceaseless. I think what he's saying here in somewhat of a uh, metaphorical illustration is that as the ages unfold, age after age after age, you want to join me? After age, just like the waves, here's what God's going to be demonstrating and showcasing in his children. That's my grace. That's my grace. That's my grace. That's my grace. Nothing's going to be horizontal There'll be nothing for you to boast about. We'll all be vertical and we'll be bragging on God's grace. Age after age after age. Succeeding, repetitious, 
eternity will be brilliant, won't it? This is what God is doing. And this is why he's doing it. So this timeline is kind of leaving us really with just kind of a, a simple sentence to kind of leave with today. That God makes spiritually uh, dead rebels alive. Well, we could just stop there and be thankful for that, first of all, couldn't we? That God makes dead rebels spiritually alive? Amen. But here's why he does it. To showcase both now and especially later his grace in Christ, not our goodness in ourselves. This is the real juxtaposition of the text. Not our goodness, but God's grace. And Paul is continually downplaying our goodness and our effort and our earning and showcasing God's grace. This is what it means to be saved. So you fall upon the goodness and graciousness and gift of God. And you allow your life to be a showcase for eternity of his grace, not your goodness. Now, as you read that single sentence that hopefully gives you some summary feel of this text from a timeline perspective, all right? I hope you're asking this question. Why, Todd, did you say especially later? What's with that? Because I think God's demonstrating that now. Yes, he is. Paul said that in 1 Timothy 1.16. It's happening now. He says in Ephesians, it's going to happen in the coming ages. I think and there's an aspect of this text that we could overlook if we're not careful. When Paul says in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he will show there is a sense in which Paul is indicating that something's going to happen in, the, in, in eternity that's better and greater than what's happening now. So if that's the case, and I believe it is, that Paul is saying what God is going to demonstrate through his work will be even greater in the coming ages than it is now, how can that be? Why is that the case? How will that occur? I think two things are in play here. I'll share this with you and we'll land this plane. The reason it's greater in the coming ages is because of the longevity of grace and the visibility of grace. Hear me out as I make a case for what I'm contending for. I think the longevity of grace means that God is going to do this not just in the moment, but when, when the coming ages show up, when this eschaton, the eternal state happens, God will then in succeeding fashion, in repeating fashion, eternally, that's what he's saying, eternally, God will make sure your life resounds to his grace. Now, can that happen in the moment? Yes, but follow me here. Let's take Jonathan. Jonathan's life resounds to God's grace here in the moment. People see him and say, man, I can't believe Jonathan's a Christian. Good compliment, right? So in a lot of ways, Jonathan's life demonstrates God's grace. Not his goodness at all, but God's grace. But at some point, Jonathan, barring the Lord's return, will die and in a physical, temporal way, his life will not be able to demonstrate that. Memories can. Things you write and leave can. Sure. But as far as a living person demonstrating God's grace in your life, that is actually over. It's a temporal situation. That's not true in the coming ages. It's eternal. It will never end. I say that's better. Furthermore, the, the visibility of grace. Let's take Jonathan again. I'm looking at Jonathan let's just be frank. There are times I'm like, Jonathan, man, I thought you were a follower of Jesus. I mean, what's going on with that, right? He may say that to me like, Todd, you're our pastor. Like, dude, what's, what's up with that? I thought you were a follower. Sometimes God's grace is blurred. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 that we see through a glass darkly. Like we can see it, but it's just a little dim. But he said when the perfect comes, we'll see without any 
blurriness clearly. And I can just tell you, when I'm on display in heaven and there's no sin, there's no world, flesh, and devil, there's nothing hindering your view and all of heaven and earth's view of God's work in my life, that'll be a much better view than what you're seeing now. So I contend that the longevity of grace and the visibility of grace says to me that what he will display in the coming ages, though it started now, it will be even more brilliant and better and greater then. Hallelujah, church, for what God has started and what he will keep doing in the coming ages. This is every person's testimony that's in Christ. That God has made you a former dead rebel, now spiritually alive. And here's why he's done it. So that he can demonstrate, showcase, boast about his grace and goodness, not yours. Question, is this your testimony? Is this how you've come to Christ? with nothing in your hands but simply broken, empty, poverty-stricken spiritually, knowing you're dead with no life and that you need life from one who has life, and that's God. If that's you, then this is your testimony. God has made you spiritually alive, and he's going to demonstrate his grace even now and even greater later. If this is not your testimony, oh, I would urge you this morning, Trust in Christ. Realize you are spiritually dead. You're in rebellion against God. But he loves you and is seeking you. And in his mercy, he's pursuing you. Would you this morning respond to God in simple faith and trust and say, Lord, if salvation is simply a gift, I am going to quit trying to earn it, bargain for it, steal it, leverage it, negotiate. I'm simply going to receive it. And God will give you, through his power and grace, the gift of eternal life. It will overwhelm you. It will astound you. It will leave you humbled. And it will leave you joyful. So if you're still trying to work for it, if you're trying to hold you know, it tight, like I've got to do something, Will you let go of the reins of human effort so that your hands are open to the receive to receive the gift of eternal life from God? Now, if you've received it, I'm going to ask you to do one thing. If you know you're a Christian, you're in Christ, your heart right now is like, man, I love this text. It describes us so well. And you know you're a believer. Then let me ask you to do one thing. Make sure your language resembles Ephesians 2. Like as you testify to this chapter, as you testify to God's grace, not your goodness, let's let, the, let that be heard. In other words, things like this just don't fly. Like uh, God is my co-pilot. Well, first of all, God's never been anybody's co-pilot. God owns the plane. He built the plane and he just let you board it as a gracious favor, so to speak, okay? This whole God is my co-pilot thing is a bunch of junk. Things like, well, I'm helping God save me. I don't even personally like the phrase, I found God. No, you didn't find God. God, God wasn't lost, first of all, okay? And you weren't you know, pursuing him and saying, hey, I think I'll, if you got time, I, I want to talk to you. 
You were actually dead. You were lost. I was lost. God was pursuing us. We're Adam hiding behind the tree. God's calling our name, looking for us. And only in his mercy and grace did we respond to what he was offering, eternal life through Christ. So church, let us be a body of believers resembling Ephesians 2 in our language and our testifying that we're not boasting about anything. We're not bragging about ourselves. We rely only, solely, and wholly on God for our salvation. And that comes through in our language. If you're not yet a believer, I want you to do this. Would you trust Christ this morning? Again, would you let go of the reins of human effort and will you have your hands open to receive the gift of God's eternal life? It would sound something similar to this. There's no magic word. There's no special prayer. It's the posture of your heart. But if the posture of heart this morning is to receive God's gift of eternal life, you could respond to God by saying something like this. Heavenly Father, I know that without Christ, I'm in sin. I'm dead. I'm under the control of the prince of the power of the air. I'm under your wrath. I'm a rebel, spiritually dead, but physically active against you. God, I, I want to be reconciled to you. That can only happen through Jesus and what he did for me. So God, this morning, I believe that Jesus Christ is your son and my savior. He lived, died, was buried, and rose again as proof he's the son of God. So God, would you, through Jesus, save me this morning and give me eternal life. Raise me out of death and seat me with you. And then God will do what only God will do. He will save a dead rebel, make that rebel righteous and give him life. And then for the rest of your life and eternity, he will showcase all that he's doing in your life. That's your testimony now. And it's my prayer that more and more folks will come to Christ and together we as a church will resound to his glory and his grace. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.